Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As we've alluded to on our other shows, this offseason, our Crack Rackets team attempted to speak with every Power 5 men's and women's head coach employed throughout the college tennis world. We asked each of them about their team's respective 2021 seasons and what we should expect from them here in 2022. Of course, we also offered them a platform to share their thoughts on some of the big picture topics in college tennis. It is a fantastic series that our team is ecstatic to finally start sharing with the broader college tennis community over the next six weeks. Fans can expect no fewer than 10 episodes a week to be posted on this feed. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support with this series. Remember, go to tennis-point.com right now. Use that promo code CR15 to express your thanks. With all of that said, we're ready to get to today's episode. So Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a returning champion here to our Crack Racket shows. Of course, you may know him best from his standout playing days at Duke. Of course, now we know him as the head coach of the University of Virginia men's tennis team. Welcome back to the show, Coach Andreas Pedroso. Coach, how are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks, Alex. Thanks uh, uh, again for having me. It is always a pleasure to have you. And I, what I've realized nowadays as I look through the coaching ranks, all of you, former All-Americans or, you know, national championship winning coaches. I want to start there. I'm trying to switch up the order of the questions because we've done so many of these coaching interviews now. But when you look at the coaching ranks and you look at the depth in, well, really the depth in college tennis, my big theory is that, you know, the top teams have always been good, but teams 30, 40, 50, they kill their counterparts from decades ago. What do you think is responsible for that fact? I mean, I, I think the, I think the coach, the head coaching, the college tennis head coaching job has just become more professionalized, more competitive, more comprehensive in the different hats that you have to wear when you're doing the job. And I think you've gotten great players to take college coaching jobs, great business minds. I think the great players have learned from the great business minds in the past and the, and the great business minds have learned from the great players in the past. I think this job forces you to really uh, fill any void you have as a, as a college coach when it comes to managing your team, the business side of the job and the coaching side of the job. And, and I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot more parity. I think there's a lot more depth. Every match is tough. So yeah, I totally agree with you. It's become super competitive. Has it become easier to sell college tennis to international prospects? I do think the incorporation of international players, you have to acknowledge that has been a big factor. Just there's more talent available in the sport. Is it an easier sell for you as a head coach? My experience over the last five years as a head coach is that Europeans and South Americans have been more interested in college tennis than when I was an assistant coach. Uh, And again, I think it's the average age of the top hundred continuing to go up and up. I think college tennis, the level has gotten higher. I think that they've seen the resources that we have, the opportunities we have to take them to pro events, the facilities, Again, the coaches just being 
being all in and and really fully dedicated to their players. So I, I think you're right. I think I think Europeans, South Americans, now you're seeing more players from Asia uh, are, are becoming a lot more interested in college tennis. Mm-hmm. And I did 30 minutes on Virginia tennis with Dustin Taylor on his podcast. I promise we're going to get to Virginia tennis here on this show. But just, you know, while we're talking about this topic, um, again, as you look at the sport and its growth and, and the product moving you know forward, I, th- I think the product's in a great place. I'm curious throughout your coaching career, because something I've started to learn is that X's and O's and actually coaching the tennis, that's like 20% of the job. You're, as you mentioned, a CEO of a team. You're managing budgets. You're managing egos, academics, and all of these different things, aspects. You know, how, as you've gone through your coaching career now, and again, I think it's safe to say pretty comfortable now in the head job. What is this, year five for you? I want to say at the helm at Virginia, it's all your players. How much have you realized, you know, you have to emphasize time, not just on the X's and O's, but on all the other things that come with the sport? Well, luckily, I have an amazing associate head coach in Scott Brown, Mm -hmm. and he wears just as many hats as I do. And he just does a great job of allowing me to focus on whatever the priority is that day, because in, in every sense of the, in every sense of the definition of the role, he is, he's practically a head coach. And so I can trust him to run practice. I can trust him to recruit. I can trust him to pretty much do any part of the job. And so he's super value added to me. And I think if you hire someone like that, that's willing to get their hands dirty work hard, be humble, and is also as professional as someone like Scott, I think, you know, you can do it all, in my opinion. You just need, you need great help. And that's why who you hire is so important. And that's at any or any type of organization. Yeah, no. And uh, with that in mind, obviously, the people you have surrounded yourself with make you look pretty good over the past year. And with that in mind, let's talk about Virginia last season. And you look at the big number, 23-3 and overall. It was a fantastic year, certainly. We have to start right at the start of the season. You had a young team, and it helps to bring back Carl, no doubt, and Gianni and Ryan and Will, guys who have played in big matches, and obviously Carl, the connective thread to the national championship winning teams. But you go to the Ty Tucker Tennis Center, brand new opening, national indoor kickoff weekend. The Buckeyes don't lose very frequently in Columbus. Hopefully, you know, now that the match is in hindsight, you can be honest with me. Do you expect to win that match and to win 4-2 the way you guys did? What did that tell you about your team early on? I knew I knew our young guys were gamers. <laughs> and, and I know what I'm always going to get on the court from a Gianni Ross and a Ryan Getz and a Carl Soderlin. So those guys are just staples. You know what you're going to get from them. Those guys are going to die on the court. But I knew the young guys were gamers. I knew that, uh, that they had some inexperience to deal with, but – you know, they handled it great and it's a tough place to play. You know, I think it'll be more difficult this year because there'll be a full crowd there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the courts will be a little quicker. So I think, I think, you know, that, that probably helps them out a little bit, but, um, but yeah, that was a great start to the year. It kind of showed me what these guys were made of and, you know, we're going to go do something similar this year by, you know, we've scheduled Ohio state and Kentucky and, and Baylor and TCU in February at the start of the year. Um, I just feel like it's good for a team to kind of cut their teeth and and pay their dues at the beginning of the year and, and get them great experience against great teams. So 
so that's the preparation for the rest of the year. Yeah, and the the schedule is loaded this year. I want to get to that. I do want to talk about the freshmen last season and just the way they were able to perform. And I, we'll get to Alex Kiefer as we look towards this season. I don't want him to feel slighted because I obviously tend to this fall. It's a huge fall for Alex. But you look at what Jeffrey and Inyaki and Chris were able to do. And I mean, the numbers are just ridiculous. 16 and 6, 18 and 4, 15 and 7. You've seen some good freshmen in your day. We can go all the way back to Alex Damajan, all the way through now to this group of guys. What allows freshmen to click in that sort of way? Obviously, they're all gamers, but, you know, college tennis, everyone's good at tennis. You know, what allows these freshmen to find success in the dual match format right away? Well, first of all, I think they're really skilled guys. And so they came in playing at a high level. Um, And I, I would include Alex in that group for sure. I mean, Alex was chomping at the bit at playing in, you know, every match and, I think all four guys did an unbelievable job of, of embracing the culture. And I give a lot of credit to our older guys, putting them under their wing and, and just having a real team. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we do that a lot of teams, other, other teams don't do. You know, we, we have a certain way to warm up. We, we dress the same, you know, we have a, a certain language that we use, you know, there are things that have been built over, you know, close to two decades in this program that can be foreign to someone walking in if they're not used to being part of a team, a really close team. And I think those four guys, those four now second years, really did a great job of embracing the culture, trusting it, trusting the older guys, older guys, regardless of where they played. I mean, the guys that didn't play up to Carl Soderlin, they all just really made sure that that culture kept, kept being enhanced. And, and yeah, I think that culture gives them, a little bit visit a little bit of visibility as to how how big of a deal it is to play for Virginia and what an opportunity it is and what an honor it is and how much it means to the community and those guys bought in from the beginning and and it made them better and they shined and and they did it as a group i mean those guys those four second years lived in an apartment together they're super close i would come out on a sunday where it would be a day off and those guys would be on their own out there playing sets. And, you know, you don't see that too often, but that's, these guys love tennis and they, they love to compete and they care a lot and they love the school. So it's a pretty special group. Yeah. And again, I want to harp it. I'm going to offer some takes. You can shoot me down. Tell me why I'm right or wrong. When I watch Jeffrey play, and again, he goes 16 and six last year overall in dual matches, uh, it was just a sure thing. Like, again, you see his game, how consistent he is off of all of the wings, the, how high the floor is, match in, match out. That's a guy who's going to have success in college tennis. I once watched a video, though, of a young assistant coach, younger, I should say, by the name of Andreas Pedroso coaching a freshman Ty Kwiatkowski and saying, yeah, you can massage the ball all day, but at some point you got to hit it. You, you know, you got to take control of the point. Some iteration of that. When you look for Jeffrey now, because again, Carl's gone and someone's going to have to fill that number one spot, whether it's him, Chris, and Yaki, someone else, plenty of options. But when you look for Jeffrey moving forward, there's a lot of things he can do well. What does he do this season to take that next step to, you know, start developing the weapons to, I'm sure he has pro aspirations. Definitely, definitely. Jeffrey's a physical beast, so yeah. that's that's always there. He moves really well. He's never going to get tired. He's really strong, and and now it's just a matter. And this is I would say this for 
any great player in college is figuring out what your game is and sticking to it regardless of who you're going to play. Obviously, there's little adjustments here and there, but with Jeffrey, it's he spent a lot of time improving his serve this fall, um, you know, off the ground. His forehand's a huge weapon. Um, his backhand's really solid, but understanding the patterns that he needs to play over and over again, you look at the best players in the world and they play very similar points uh, when they're in control of points. And, and so that's kind of organizing guys, organizing a Jeffrey and just making sure that he's serving to places where he's getting forehands, making sure that he's returning to places where he's getting forehands. And, and, and when guys are on the run with a continental grip, he's taking balls out of the air. So getting Jeffrey to net more often, uh, you know, these are things that, that we've been working on. And, and I think you're going to see it little by little. I've got to give Jeffrey a lot of credit because it's very tough coming in in January. Mm-hmm. And, and so usually you see a lot of first years come in in January and, and they reach April and you start to see them kind of. And so, you know, Jeffrey, he got a little sick at the beginning of April, but he fought through it and just kept fighting. But coming in January is really tough. And now that he's got a fall under his belt, I just feel like, you know, he's he's going to have a he's going to have a, a presence out there that that's going to really help the team. Yeah. Now, I, I, to your point, and it's simplistic, but it feels like he could do plan B, plan C, plan D. It's just what is plan A for him? And yeah, yeah. as good as that plan A is, probably that's his ceiling, right? It's just what yeah. can plan A be? And so he was fantastic. The moment and. It was the best one and two weekend at the national indoors I've ever seen. Uh, you know, from your team last year. Yes, it was only one victory, but the energy you guys show, and if that doubles point flips against North Carolina, it is a different match. And just you know, one person who you could just tell is going to love the dual match season, going to thrive in it, is Inyaki, who's just a ball of energy. There's no denying that. I guess my question to you: How do you best harness that energy moving forward? He does a pretty good job of managing it. I'm mm-hmm. not sure I need to harness it too much sure. uh, <laughs> because he's he's the life of the party <laughs> on on and off the court. He just loves to compete, and he's it's not going to matter whether his forehand's working or it's not working or it's his backhand or it's serve. He just plays with what he has, and it's very Spanish. You know, we talk about it all the time. The Spanish are going to go out there with the tools that they have, and they're going to make the most of it. It might not be pretty. Some days it might be, but that's Iñaki Montes, and he's got a lot of personality, and so it helps us in doubles, and it also gives us a spark in singles. Yeah, guy is just – again, some people belong in college tennis. He is one of them, and so it's just so fun to watch him compete. How about Chris this fall? 10 and 2 overall, and it always helps to be 6'5, 6'6, grow into that frame. But I think you saw that growth at the end of the last year, case in point, the Tristan Boyer match. Um, you know, talk to me about Chris's growth here this offseason. Chris has worked really hard. Uh, you know, he's had a little bit of bad luck with some injuries that that haven't haven't allowed him to to train as much as we would like. But, you know, when he's been on the court, he's been super coachable. And he goes home and works hard. You know, he's he's here working hard. He's done a great job in the gym. I, I think that's really helped him a lot. He's gotten a lot stronger, and that's helped his movement. And and he's just been really coachable. And he's really bought into, like I said, you know, the patterns that he needs to play in order to, to be controlling points. Um, we've made some small adjustments on his serve that he's bought into. Um, he's just been really open-minded and, and really easy to work with. 
and he just never gives up. That, that's something that like, with Chris, he just never gives up. It doesn't matter what the score is. He just has this belief inside of him that, that he's always got a chance and, and that helps him. That helps the team. Um, you know, I've got to give Scott Brown a lot of credit there because he spent a lot of time with Chris. Um, so, so yeah, he's another guy that's really, really improved and, and, and really helped the team. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, again for the team this fall and, 23 and 3. I'm sure the the ending against UNC, uh, USC was not the ending you all were looking for last season and I I know that lights a fire and obviously you bring back everyone but Carl and you add Jackson, you add Barr. I want to talk about them in a moment, but one thing, you know, the big number that stands out to me looking at your fall results. You played 14 doubles teams this fall. That's definitely a higher number, coach. What leads to that decision? I think just having great options Sure. And so just trying to figure out what the best three teams are. And, and, you know, Chris and Ryan have obviously had an unbelievable all American and, and they've played a whole season together. So, I mean, they're, they're definitely a great option. Uh, But we also have other players that, that could have great chemistry. And so that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to see if something stuck and, um, and we'll keep doing that for the next you know, nine days before our first match. And hopefully we can come up with three teams that we can stick with for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. Will you keep experimenting come dual match season? Or at that point, do you like to, are you someone who likes to let a team at that point, you know, play through their problems? Ideally, I'd, I'd like to give a team a full season together. Sure. I think that helps. And we did a pretty good job of that last year, except, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of our guys got COVID last year. And so we had to, we had to switch it up at the end, but, um, you know, I would like to have three teams set for the season, but the good thing is, is that we've got a lot of depth this year. And so if we need to mix it up, we totally can, because we've got, you know, nine guys that can legitimately play doubles at a high level. So, mm-hmm. and let's talk about that depth. You bring in Jackson, you bring in Barr. I mean, Barr, obviously part of a national championship winning team, clinched the match in 2018 over Ohio State. Jackson Allen coming from Minnesota has, you know, been at top of the lineup, singles, doubles. What, you know, why were those two additions the right additions for you as opposed to going after freshmen, say, this season? Well, I'll start with Jackson. I mean, everything I hear about him from Big Ten coaches and Big Ten players is that He's a rip your heart out competitor and he just thrives in dual matches and his coaches at Minnesota just spoke the world of him and just the way he approached the whole transfer process was super professional. I mean, the guy just works like crazy and he's really connected with the guys and he's, he's really done a great job of, of, of adding value to the culture. Uh, So a competitor like that, somebody who's played at the highest level in the Big Ten was somebody that was just too good to pass up. And and Barr obviously is a very accomplished player. Uh, he comes from a you know a winning tradition over at Wake Forest. He knows what it takes to to perform well in the big biggest moments of college tennis. Um, it's pretty unique that he's at Darden, our business school, which is impossible to get into. But <laughs> he's a smart, smart guy. And, and he's transitioned there beautifully. And, and so it's really cool to have somebody in, in such a prestigious school on our team. He's having some great experiences that he's sharing with the team. But he's going to be, you know, he's going to be a force to be reckoned with in singles and doubles. 
And he's just going to have a lot of great experience and wisdom to share with the team based on, based on his time in college tennis prior to Virginia. Mm-hmm. And again, you've got 10 guys who could all play singles in a pinch for you if needed this season. How competitive has this fall been? And as you, I mean, I, I imagine you, Scott, the, the entire, you know, just there's a lot, uh, you know, Brian as well, a lot of thinking going on this fall about what's the best lineup going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, somebody who who really came out, played a ton of tournaments and won a ton of matches and I was really happy about was Alex Kiefer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he was super humble last year, total team player, but he kept working, trained hard in the summer and and came out this fall and, and played every tournament he could sign up for and fought like crazy, made some big improvements. So he's definitely in the mix. And Gianni and yeah. won 10 in a row to end last season. Like, let's not forget that either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> the guy. This, uh, this is a this is a special group when it comes to depth. And you know, you have William Woodall, who's got a lot of experience in singles and doubles. And so I'm excited to to consider him as well and and give him some looks. So it's you know, like I said, it's it's a really good problem to have ha- having good options in singles and doubles. And I've told guys that January and February might be a little bumpy again because of COVID. And it's just this virus is so contagious. And, you know, even if we wear masks, it's just you just never know. So luckily, we've got really good depth in case something like that happens. But fingers crossed it doesn't. So, so yeah. Can I, I mean, you can feel free not to answer this question. But when you have guys like Jackson and Barr, who are more proven commodities, right? They are both graduated. You know, they've been through the stages. You know what you're going to get out of them. Is there a world where you tell them, like, you know, don't worry about the away matches. Like, we've got plenty of young guys to fill that spot, that roster management. Is that a luxury? Like, is that something you think about this season? Absolutely. Roster management is going to be a big part of my job because I need to give a lot of guys looks this year. I need everyone to be ready. I need to continue uh, building experience in certain players so that they're ready this year and next year. Uh, so roster management, when you have this much depth, is really important. I mean, you know, I, I experienced this when I was an assistant here when we had a lot of depth. So that's going to help Scott and I a lot make decisions as far as who plays. And and also roster, also keeping guys fresh for the postseason. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really important. So. I, no, I think about the 2014 team, your last season as uh, assistant and I know how difficult that team, you know, that just managing everything on that team was because there were so many guys who can play. And I think that is what's so fascinating about your team this year. And, you know, to get back to the schedule here, uh, as you're, you load it up, you know, again, even before the kickoff weekend, you're playing Liberty, Richmond, Harvard, and then, you know, post kickoff weekend, you've got Kentucky, you know, at Ohio State, at Baylor, at TCU. What leads to that sort of scheduling principle? I've always believed in tough schedules. Mm-hmm. You know, the vast majority of the guys on our team want to play pro tennis after school and nothing's going to be harder than that. So mm-hmm. scheduling the toughest teams in the country should be, you know, should be a great, great college experience for them prior to them turning pro. You know, we can, we, we feel like we can play with anyone, beat anyone. We can also lose to anybody if we're not ready. Sure. Uh, so we try and make the schedule as tough as possible uh, throughout the year so that we 
so that we feel like we've paid our dues. We feel like we're, we've been exposed to the best. We know what it takes and, and we're ready for, for the postseason. Yeah. And, you know, again, with that in mind, would you be fine with the 500 rule going away permanently? Sorry. Would you you be fine with the 500 rule going away permanently? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be fine with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'd be fine with that for sure. I think that's a wrinkle. Especially if you're in a really tough conference and you schedule Mm -hmm. really tough. I think I, I would agree. I think that would be fine. Yeah, because again, teams 30, 40, 50, even if the records aren't outstanding, they're all exceptional. And so I would agree. I just I don't think that's a fun rule. Um, you talk about developing your guys for pro tennis. Obviously, everyone's development is individual. And, you know, part of what makes college tennis so difficult, I imagine, from your perspective is you're managing two things, developing the individual versus developing the team. How do you balance those two things in your team's practice schedule, making sure everyone gets individuals, making sure you get enough team practice in all within the 20-hour framework? Well, in the fall especially, we try and do as many one-on-one and small group practices as possible. Uh, In the spring, you have a little bit more of a team practice type feel. We rarely have the whole team out there uh, just because, again, this is an individual sport, but it's in a team setting. And so you need to train them like tennis players. You need to train them like individuals. And then I think the culture is what creates the team. It's not, I don't think a team practice is going to give you more camaraderie. I think the culture, how the guys treat each other, how they talk to each other, whether they live with each other or not, you know, that's, that's what's going to create team camaraderie and team unity. But when it comes to tennis, you have to approach this as an individual sport. In my opinion, that's how we've always done it. And I think we've produced results doing it. So, like I said, our practices are very one-on-one, small group. Uh, guys will always be on the court in a two-to-one ratio, uh, player-coach, and and one-to-one. And, and we just try and really give them as much attention as possible because that's what they would be receiving if they were on the pro tour. So we've, we try and do the best we can to create an environment that's as, that's as similar as possible as to if they would turn pro uh, and and be training over 52 weeks on the pro tour. In your experience, it's the most efficient way? No. Okay. But I'm 42 years old, and, sure. if, and Scott's 39, 38. If there's a time to grind, it's now. And, sure. and this is the only way to do it. We've got to work hard, and it means we're on the court seven, eight hours a day. And so the administrative work sometimes gets pushed back to 10, 11 o'clock at night. But hey, again, I'm 42. Now's the time to grind at, you know, a later date in my life, a later age in my life. Maybe I won't do the job like this, but, you know, I'm going to try and get everything I can out of myself and and my staff um, at this point. No, I love it. And for the record, I would have assumed the numbers were flipped. And I know when Scott played and I know when you played, but I just always think he's the cranky old man. And, you know, you're the young one pushing him along. Um, But it's, yeah, all of that said, um, you know, again, talking about these broader things, and this is not a trick question, but did you know your compliance officer at Duke? The reason I ask that is you talk about the pro model, especially in the eight-hour period respectfully like I, I i feel that's not enough and these players now know their compliance officers right they can identify them they know where the office is you would think in today's yeah. modern day they can make eye contact and say i am filling out a waiver asking for andreas who i came here to be coached by to yeah. work with me an extra hour 
how yeah. frustrating are those, you know, restrictions? And is that a scenario you experience? Absolutely. I, I think the eight hour period is a shame. Um, you know, I, I think you got to look at it the positive way, though, is is that it it forces these guys to take ownership and be accountable and and go out there and, and practice on their own. And, and, you know, it's up to them. They've got to run it. You know, the captain's lead and um, it's got to be completely voluntary. So the, unless you are, you know, number one in the world in the juniors or winning futures and winning matches at challengers at 17, 18, you're probably going to be out there on the tour by yourself a decent amount. And so coming out of college, you know, you're going to need to be independent and you're going to need to be self-reliant. So the way I talk to the guys is, is, Hey, this eight hour period, it's up to you guys. And I can't tell them what to do, but they're going to have to be independent when they turn pro. And so, so yeah, it's, you got to look at the positive. I mean, if you, if you, if you let the negative energy take over with all the NCA rules, you know, yeah. this, it can get pretty frustrating. I can imagine. No, I like that spin. And with that in mind, you've talked to me about the development side. You've talked to me about the culture you're trying to build, but let's just crystallize it. And part of why I wanted to interview all of you Power 5 coaches, I don't think parents, players, others get to hear this. Give me the pitch. Why should I come to Charlottesville? Why should I ride with the Who's moving forward? What I like to tell parents and kids and recruits is I used to say best of both worlds, which would mean academics and tennis, but it's really best of all worlds. I don't know if people have had the opportunity to meet UVA alums out there. They are obsessed with our school. They are obsessed with our sports. They're obsessed with our history. They're obsessed with Charlottesville. And it's a magical place. I mean, I get off a plane in Charlottesville and my heart rate goes down. I just feel like I'm at home. You've got the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's just a beautiful place. And, and on top of that, you have world-class academics, which can compete with any school in the country. You have a tennis program that exists at one of the best resorts in the United States. And it's a, another beautiful facility, indoor and outdoor now. You have a winning tradition that has been around for a long time now. You've got players that want to play professional tennis after school. So you have that sense of urgency at practice every day. You have players that care about academics, that support each other with their classes. And, and so you have that, you have players that really care about both. And, and it's, it's not for everyone. It's, there's, there's a lot of work involved. There's a lot of responsibility, but my first point was, you know, the alums, the people, when you meet someone from the university of Virginia, you just meet someone that's willing to help you willing to go out of their way for you. And I think our players experience that when they're in school and when they're out of school. And so when you combine all of those factors, I feel like it checks a lot of boxes for someone that wants to get a world-class education and somebody that wants to play professional tennis after school. And I do believe you can do both. There's no reason why you got to work hard, but it, it can totally be done. And, and they'll have to see it to believe it because every single coach in the country is probably saying we have the best facilities. We have the best culture. We have, the best this, that. But when you come to Charlottesville, you see it, you feel it, you connect with it. I mean, when I, when I, when we walk on the lawn, when we see the rotunda, when we go 
you know, to our new, brand new outdoor facility and you see the view from there and you see the guys working hard and you go to dinner with our guys who are the best of friends. We check a lot of boxes. And yeah. so I think that's, I think that's why we're, we're an attractive place for, for, for prospects. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think to your point, if I'm a recruit, I'm milking all five of my visits. I'm going wherever I am. <laughs> like, show me all these campuses because until you know, you don't know. And so, yeah, I, I would agree. I think Virginia's got everything. I am curious, and I referenced this earlier, and I know it's pronounced right now, five-year of high school graduates because of the extra COVID year of eligibility. But how are you balancing in the immediate future, bringing in the four-year guys, you know, the four freshmen like you did last year versus knowing, hey, there's a Botzer out there. There's a Jackson Allen out there I can go get, you know, find as well to fill in in a pinch. How do you balance those two things in shaping your roster? I think a transfer coming in has to be a really special opportunity. Okay. Um, I think investing in a four-year guy is, in most cases is going to take precedent over the transfer. Um, I think with transfers, you kind of have to thread the needle and really choose wisely. And I think we did with Barr and Jackson. Um, so so that that's kind of my point of view on it. Sure. I'm open to transfers, but I'm really going to do my research and I'm really going to do my, my due diligence on them to make sure that they're the right fit because it's just a year. And in Barr's case, it's two, uh, which is great, <laughs> but... <laughs> But uh, it's just a year, so you've got to make sure it's the right person. And and a four-year guy is somebody that is obviously going to need some growth and and is is going to going to evolve while they're here, and they can involve evolve the right way if uh, if they're under under the right culture, which I believe is ours. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, when we look at your team this season, all the pieces are there. And uh, you know, twenty three and three last year. You guys are going to play host as such this year on the kickoff weekend. It's going to be a fun year for the Who's. With that said, uh, I want to ask some big picture questions before I let you go. And you know, we got to do at least five minutes on Virginia history. It's just mandatory. When I get one of the characters from that era, I got to do at least five minutes on it. Um, yeah. But let's start big picture here first. You know, I've been talking with all the coaches. One of the themes I've wanted to hit on is how do we grow the game of college tennis moving forward? And I mentioned this earlier, the depth, no ad scoring, the parity it's injected. I think the product's as good as it's ever been. With that said, when we talk about growing the game, should we be focusing on the product still? Or is it time for us as a college tennis community to maybe focusing on the marketing? Like that's what should be our focus. Which of those two categories do you fall in? I think... I think getting more matches on TV is only going to help. I think that's an, I think that's an important step that college tennis needs to, we need to do a better job of um, within their conference networks or, you know, whatever channel we can get on. I honestly think that giving more exposure to people in pro tennis in terms of educating them on what college tennis really is, what's a college tennis match like, you know, huge tournament directors and and tournament organizers and and management companies and and owners of events if we could expose them to what our product is if they love tennis they're going to want to not only include more team competitions in pro tennis but i actually think if you have the right people talking to them i think you could get a lot more of them involved in college tennis and creating more events where 
you know, it's, it's, it's highlighted. It's not only on TV, but, you know, live streaming and, and maybe they're like they used to do at Indian Wells where you'd have college matches there and the Australian Open. I think those are great. Um, but if you can get if there's a way for us to highlight the NCAA championships more uh, and and get some powerful people involved in the pro game, uh, I, I think I think that's the way that that you can really market this sport, because you look at the success of the ATP Cup and I mean, that's college tennis. Pretty much. You look at the ATP Cup, you look at Davis Cup, I mean, you look at the you look at the Labor Cup, especially. I mean, that's been a groundbreaking uh, event. It's changed tennis worldwide. And I think you get people like that more exposed to college tennis. And I think they're going to want to get their hands hands more dirty in college tennis. And they're going to they're going to include more team competitions in pro events, which only helps college tennis because it shows our product is is attractive. Yeah, and again, you nailed it. I know I was planning to travel in 2020 to Indian Wells where they had the four-team event. And, you know, there's a lot of good North American events in that time span. I think even if it was on clay, like in Houston or in Charleston or obviously Miami, Indian Wells in the the, uh, spring, those would be great platforms for college tennis. Now the question of how we get the, the tournament directors to buy in, I suppose that's a different one. But I, it sounds like you guys would enthusiastically do that. And one of my theories, you brought up world team tennis. How is there not some sort of relationship where the top five ranked players at the end of the year, men's and women's in college tennis, you're playing the season of world team tennis. Congratulations. Here's your contract for the fall or for the summer. You get to go play those events. Is that another piece of the equation? Like it sounds like to you, the answer is yes. Is getting, you know, Oracle was doing this for a bit. UTR is trying to do more of it now. But does there have to be a a greater relationship between college and the pros? I think so. I mean, I I think, yeah, I think that would make sense. I think the problem with with world team tennis is that the the collegiate players have so little time during the year to play pro events. So they want to take that time in the summer to improve their ranking and, and test the waters of the pro tour. So, but at least playing a couple weeks would be great. Um, so, but I do think there are ways for us to, to support college tennis in the pro game more often, you know, whether that's, Hey, whoever gets the most ATP points in a summer gets a wild card into, you know, a pro event or, Hey, I know you're you're probably going to talk about whether NCAA should be in the fall or the spring, and there there's arguments to both sides. Um, I, I would, I think a lot of people would agree that it would be great to have the team event and just end the year right there. Uh-huh. Um, however, it's more complicated than that. I think you would, in order to have it in the fall, you'd have to have a ranking that starts in January rather than September, and have a ranking that goes all year round. And if you had the NCAA championships individuals in november or december i think you need to save some wild cards for college players that do well on the pro tour throughout that year Mm -hmm. um so i think i think that's important i think continuing to tie wild cards to pro to pro events is very important the ncaa championships should at least have a qualifying wild card into the u.s open i'm one of the coaches that believes that it should go to an american or a foreigner um, like it used to, because I think that it just creates a sense of urgency for the event. I think it improves the competition. And yeah, a foreigner might win it, but 
you know, it, I think it just increases competition. Like we've, <laughs> that's, that's my take on it. Um, no, I love so, that. And you nailed a lot of things I wanted to get to. I agree. Wild card. How is Stella Perez, Mariba, or Paul Jubb any less a representative of college tennis than Sam Riffis or Emmett Navarro? They're just not. Um, it gets back to the marketing aspect, creating that tie-in. USDA, you want to promote college tennis, promote everything about college tennis. And then, you know, to get to the fall portion, and one way to do that, I agree with you, 12-month ranking system. If they just went to a rolling ranking system – and dropped out seniors as they graduated. Would that work with you? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that's that's yep. one solution. The other, I would love, and I know it's probably logistically impossible, U.S. Open second week NCAA individuals. Like that's the platform to me where if you're going to get the NCAA to be convinced that it's worthwhile to move and you have to spend money on it, you put it at the U.S. Open, it feels like that's an idea that can sell. And I know that's very early in the season – but yeah. like otherwise, you know, November, December, it's just kind of like whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a great idea of, of having the event there. Yeah, having it that early in the season obviously prevents or causes some some complications. But we can work through them. Yeah, you know, we've been doing it the same way for such a long time. We just have to get our heads together and talk about it and and collaborate. And there there are problems that can be solved in order to promote the game better. And college game better because it is a winning product. It's an attractive one. I've never met someone that went to a college match and said, "Oh, they had a terrible time." You know, they all of them are like, "Geez, I can't believe tennis is played that way. I can't believe it's so different from going to a pro event." And and then and again, you're seeing you're seeing college tennis style tournaments creeping into pro events more and more often. So mm -hmm. and it's working and it's producing a lot of money for those tournament organizers. So we have a winning product. I agree with you. Home stretch of questions here. Simultaneous start. I do think that's one thing that might be explored in the future, just because that as great as the doubles point is, there's a lull. And you start everything at once probably limits things to two and a half hours. Is that something you'd be open to? No. I think the, <laughs> I think the electricity of the doubles point is something that you just you can't you can't take out of the, the experience, um, that doubles point. It's so fast. It's, just, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a high energy from the beginning. It's, it's a special part of the match and I don't, it's a, what is it? A five minute lull. Yeah. It's really not, it's not that big of a deal. So, well, I, the thing is, and not for you and I, but for the less hardcore fans, a first set is less significant because it doesn't really determine anything and there could still be another two hours. That would be the, the more prolonged lull. The other way I have to combat that is you go sort of world team tennis-esque, but you play the doubles point. Then we're putting an hour and a half, two hours on the clock. You start singles. Every game counts for your team. And it's not individual flights anymore. It's total games won at the end. That's the final scoring. Because then every game does inherently matter, and you have a clock on the match. Does that appeal at all? Um, and by the way, I gave him no forewarning, listeners. So these are all just top, you know, yeah, top of the brain responses. I don't know. I think, I think you're taken away from a big part of tennis where it's two people competing against each other. You've got one winner, you've got one loser. Sure. And, you know, again, it's, it's an individual sport. I, I don't think we can turn it into a complete team sport. Mm -hmm. And so I think that would, 
that would kind of do that. I'm trying to, I've never really heard of that idea. Uh, I'd have to think about that one though. Yeah, it's because again, you're still playing games, right? And it's not completely compromising the development. But good, I like I like a thinker every now and then. The other one, substitutions. I think if someone gets injured, a a match should never end on an injury retirement. You've got people on the bench for the reason. Let's have someone come in finish the match. But b those ten to fifteen minute lulls that every player goes through. You got to get your act together quickly, otherwise, coach is going to sub me out. Like I don't hate that for the development either. I don't either. Yeah. I don't either. I think it's a great teaching tool and I think it's, I think it's, I I like that idea. Yeah. And it's a soccer sub thing. So once you're out, you're out, but like for a team with 10 guys you want to play, or you can bring in Woodall as the closer, like that's fun. I think you can get some fun uh, with that. Um, You know, again, those are some of the, this is, I have too much time on my hands is what this is revealing to you. All right. With that in mind, I want to nerd out a little bit. I had one coach, you know, I've asked coaches about, the changes in the way they coach doubles now versus perhaps the way they were coached in doubles or just the changes of the doubles game in general. One coach said specifically that they can point to 2011 NCAAs watching Sonam and Alex Damajan play doubles and watching Damajan hit the big first serve and not serve and volley, but hit the big forehand. And it kind of set off this little you know signal like, wait, you don't have to serve and volley? Like if a guy's slamming 120 miles per hour forehands at someone, that might be the play here for this doubles team. And that the shift may have started there. You coach that team. Uh, you know, more broadly, your thoughts on the shift in doubles principles. But did you feel that at all? I think whenever I've spoken to somebody that was a great doubles player or is a great doubles coach, doubles is always about playing to your strengths. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you've got a team serving and the guy has the best forehand on the court, if the person who's serving has the best forehand on the court, ideally, you know, you want him to receive the first ball with that forehand if it's the best shot on the court. If So you're going to serve to a place where you think he's going to get a forehand. If, if the net guy, the partner of the server who's at net, if he's an unbelievable volleyer and you trust him like crazy at the net, you're probably going to serve to a place where you think he's going to touch the first ball. So you've got to play to your strengths and, and that's what doubles is all about. And I think that's how a lot of coaches set up their plays and that's how they, they make their teams as well. Um, and that's why you see a lot of, you know, great serve and volleyers with great returners. And so you've got a good combination, but I think doubles is all about plays. Doubles is all about having an idea of where, where the return's going to go Um, you know, where you should return to put your team in the best position. And, and it's, it's very tactical and, you know, you've got to look at grips. You've got to look at strokes and okay, this guy's got a big, this guy's on the deuce side and he's got a huge swing on the forehand side. If you go big at his forehand, he's probably going to catch it late. That means it's probably going to go middle or down the line. So the net guy's got to be ready, like stuff like that, um, where you just have to be on point with, with uh, what the other team can do and and how you make them play towards your strengths. How'd you settle on Alex and Sano? Well, easily. I mean, yeah. I think Sonam was unbelievable at net. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he moved really well. He was super quick. And, you know, he got really close to the net. And Alex served served huge. Um, and and I think Alex at net is a is a is a presence there. He's like a big guy. Um, he got better and better at net as time went on. Um, but they had really good chemistry. 
Sonam brought a lot of energy. Alex was a little more quiet, um, especially that year, his freshman year. I think Alex really liked Sonam a lot. Um, who doesn't like Sonam? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, they just had really good chemistry and, yeah, complemented each other well. Mm-hmm. No, that was a fun team. Because I feel like Jameer and Sonam were playing a little bit, right, at, at some point during that season. On yeah. paper, that's also a very fun team. Just, again, a lot of yeah. speed. I think they were playing at the National Indoors. They clinched the doubles point, if memory serves me correct. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. Oh, I, I, think I think it was the made... inside-in forehand for Jameer. That that's he hits right. an inside-in yeah, yeah. winner, and he clinches Against it. Tennessee. Yeah, again, I need a life. But this is the yeah, these are the things I remember from the past. Yeah, like, that's I, a fun team. Yeah, I remember Ryan Williams was unbelievable that match. Yeah. And, I mean, anytime he touched the ball, it was like, it was danger. <laughs> so, yeah. No, and so, again, all these teams exciting. Um, all right, with all of that said, you know, again, as you look at your team this season – is it you know what is it going to take from your team to take another step forward this year? Obviously, twenty three and three, undefeated in ACC play, win the ACC tournament as well. But what's it going to take for this group to take the next step? Well, first of all, stay healthy. Sure, you know not just healthy, you know injury wise, but but COVID wise, um, because there's so many protocols, and luckily now the quarantines are shorter if you get it. Um, but yeah, that's number one. And I expect, like I said, January and February is probably going to be a rocky road for everybody. But, you know, I think like we talked about before roster management, giving a lot of guys looks, keeping some, keeping the guys a little bit more fresh. Um, I thought we might've been a little, a little too tired, uh, by the time the postseason came around last year. Um, so I think, you know, we're going to try and be creative as to, as to how we can, we can manage the roster a little better and manage the team a little better. But um, listen, I mean, the match against USC came down to a couple points. I thought they played really well. Uh, so that's how the NCAAs is. There's been plenty of round of 16 quarterfinal matches, the years that, that you know, we either won it or, or we're, we're playing at the very end where it could have gone either way and it went our way. So, you know, don't believe the result. That's a, a big coaching saying that I say a lot to the guys. I thought we were fully prepared. And this year, I think, again, I think the culture is going to be even better. And I, and I think guys have more experience. So I think we're going to be more prepared for moments like that. I think they're looking forward to that. I think an experience like last year's NCAAs is only going to motivate our guys. And it's fresh in their memory. So so we'll see how they respond. But I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to a really fun season with this group. 2011 quarterfinal Stanford 4-3 we should have lost but yeah, yeah that was that was a steal for sure Clayton Sonam another Sonam reference there we go all right one goofy one you get one freshman one freshman from your tenure at Virginia do you go any of last year's guys Damajan or Frank jeez um yeah you know with Mitchell Frank you know what you're gonna get yeah. You're just going to get a guy that's going to bleed out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's tough not to pick, but um, like I said, the, I mean, these, these second years this year, these, the first years last year, I mean, what, what they did last year was pretty special, all four of them. So um, I'd take any of those guys plus Mitchell Frank. 
Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, literally, Frank will bleed out there. That's a, that's yeah, a promise. Literally. He'll leave his knees out there if he has <laughs> uh, as he has in his career. But uh, Coach Pedroso, thank you so much, as always, for taking the time to chat. Wishing you and the team, obviously, safety, health, and success uh, throughout the course of the 2022 season. And it's always a pleasure to get the chance to chat. Hey, Alex. For, lastly, I, I just want to thank you for everything you're doing to promote college tennis. Uh, I watched our video that you put together yesterday. It's phenomenal, and all the videos for all the schools are phenomenal. I mean, it just means a lot. And so whatever we can do to support you, I hope, you know, all the coaches – I hope you can count on all the coaches because you're doing a phenomenal job, and we really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Brian was kind enough to throw some shorts my way. And I have worn them with pride. We'll just say that. Right. And so, I, you know, I say it all the time. Uh, the Virginia video staff from 2007 to 2013 were so much better at it than everyone else. And if you went on YouTube to try and watch college tennis, it was only Virginia highlights. And so I, I can draw a direct line from that to what I do today. And so obviously, you know, I like to think because I went to Michigan. I think people accept that bias out of me. I've tried to shake the other ones. There's always a little who streak in me. There will yeah, always be yeah. a who streak in me. Well, th- those videos were Mike Morgan and Ryan Mahanis. And so put them in the college in the tennis NFL, hall of fame. Anyone in the NFL, NBA, major league <laughs> baseball looking for video guys. Those two guys were, were phenomenal. That's, that's when I got to see again, the young coach. I I've seen you at your finest, maybe not your finest as well. Uh, but no, those videos <laughs> were outstanding. So again, coach, I appreciate you taking the time. Go who's as always. And I'm sure we'll chat more soon. Go who's thanks, Alex. Yep. Take care.